0: The god of hellfire! And I bring you. Watchers in the fourth dimension. By the course or that fellow in the cassock, has learned to start behaving himself. Chapel the traitress, I call
1: her. By my calculation, if we leave now, we should be back in London in time for breakfast.
0: Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of Watchers in the fourth dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley, and you must have carried out a human sacrifice before now. (laughs) This episode, it's Riley's very first Big Finish experience as we discuss Operation Hellfire, a full cast audio play featuring the Third Doctor and Joe Grant. As this is a bonus episode, we're going to skip the mail and instead dive straight into our behind the scenes segment. The idea for this one came about when David Richardson, who is the producer of the Third Doctor Adventures noted that the third Doctor had painfully few stories set in the past in his televised adventures. So he emailed Jonathan Barnes, who is the writer of this one, and asked him to write a pure historical in the style of what might have come about had the format continued into the Perwee era. Barnes has been writing for Big Finish since 2012 and has contributed 11 audio plays to the Doctor Who ranges and associated spin-offs such as Torchwood, along with a further four short trips. For this story, he actually considered making it as a celebrity historical, focusing on the real-life writer Dennis Wheatley, but instead decided to go with the fictional Wing Commander Douglas Quilter. As director here, we have Big Finish, executive producer, and the voice of the Daleks himself, Nicholas Briggs. His contributions to the who universe are far too numerous to list on this show, but suffice to say that he's had a long and illustrious career with Doctor Who. We had a secondary director, Sam Clemens, who played Hegley, also handled some of the directorial duties, specifically the scenes featuring Ian McNeese as Sir Winston Churchill, as they had to be recorded separately. Clemens also happens to be the son of Brian Clemens, who originated The Avengers, and he himself is a Big Finish regular, working both as an actor and a director. Sound design is provided by Scott Ampleford, who has made his only contribution so far to dramatize Doctor Who although he did provide most of the music for the Doctor Puppet series on The Fan Show, which the BBC put out on YouTube during the Capaldi era. The final product was released as part of the Third Doctor Adventures Volume 6 box set, along with another story called Poison of the Daleks. The set was released in May 2020, and rather fittingly, it was within a week of the 75th anniversary of VE Day, and that's victory in Europe, which marks the defeat of the Nazis and their allies. With that, let's discuss this, and let's start off Riley, your first big finish experience. What did you think?
1: I hadn't listened to an audio play or an audio book in quite a while. I usually will read a book if I instead of listening to it on audio and, other than that, just like everyone else, I'm watching television or watching film. I had forgotten how audio plays and audio books really try to engage into the atmosphere because they have to fill out so much and try to really enga- you know, pull you into this world. And so the sound sphere, for lack of a better word, was quite a treat. It's something I hadn't experienced in a long time. So I really enjoyed that element of it.
2: It's really wonderful to hear you say that because pretty much every time Anthony and I listen to one of these, it's one of the first things we talk about is just like they keep nailing that soundscape, both through music and just everything that's happening in the background. You just feel like you're immersed.
1: And what's amazing to me is that it's not just the things that are obvious to you. Like in this one, we have the sound of a blimp or you know something <laughs> like that, but it's just Other things, like they have such a focus on the sound and the background noise in the most non-obvious, very subtle ways that I was impressed with. One thing that was particularly notable in
0: this, and I thought it was interesting that it was his first time doing anything for Big Finish, was the actual sound design by Scott Ampleford. I thought his synths evoked Dudders really, really well.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up because what I noticed about the music is that it was either synth or it was low reeds, a lot of bassoon, maybe some oboe, maybe some bass clarinet. So it's that wonderful bridge of synth being used for creepiness, but also low reeds being used for creepiness. And it's just so refreshing to like hear synth done well because it's paired <laughs> with real instruments.
0: And if I recall correctly, Julie, you'll be happy to know that eventually that's the transition we start seeing in the TV show.
2: I'm ready. My body's ready.
0: (laughs) The other thing I wanted to touch on before we got into the story itself is this is the first time that we as a podcast have covered a story where they have very consciously completely recast The Doctor. Obviously, John Pertwee passed away way back in 1996. And Big Finish a few years ago brought in a gentleman by the name of Tim Trelaw to evoke the character of the Third Doctor. What did you guys think of that?
1: I was happy with the performance and the voice acting. I thought that he did a very good job of nailing the kind of flourish that (laughs) Pertwee would (laughs) use when speaking. And there are some similarities to the voice. And of course, there's other times where it seems to separate in certain scenes. But I think that for the quality of acting and the similarity of sound, I don't know if you could do much better than that.
2: And I pretty much agree. There's so many of those little quirks that he tried to embody and things like that. Obviously, it's not going to sound exactly the same, but overall, he had the mannerisms down. He still had that really wonderful dynamic with Joe And it really worked very well.
1: And what's also important to note is that oftentimes when you have a situation where someone's filling in, trying to play the part that another person played in that same way, oftentimes it comes off a little rough because it seems more like a hammy impersonation. Then it does a decent kind of recreation. This felt a lot better. It allowed itself to sometimes color outside the lines and didn't seem to hammer down on so many certain kind of vocal stylings that we had. So it had a chance to grow on its own a little bit while still feeling like the third doctor. And like I said, not sounding like some Las Vegas impersonator or something.
0: What's interesting about that, Riley, is at the last Who I had a very long conversation with Jason Hay Gallery, the CEO of Big Finish, who told me that his perspective on this is the third Doctor is a character much in the same way as, for example, Sherlock Holmes, who will be played by many actors over the course of time. So John Pertwee originated the role, but in the future as long as someone can evoke the spirit of the part, he sees no reason as to why other actors shouldn't come in and play him as well, which I thought was a pretty interesting take.
2: Think about we oftentimes liken him a little bit to a James Bondy type character, mm-hmm. and James Bond is played by different actors and they're just invoking the James Bondness of it all. Right. So it's, yeah, it's very similar.
0: And just to go back on, I think, what both of you touched on, he had the inflections of John Pertwee and the vocal cadence. He even has that slight gravelliness to his voice. But what he didn't try and do, and I'm glad he didn't, is if you listen to John Pertwee, he has a very, very slight lisp. Mm-hmm. And Tim Trelaw did not try and ape that. So he knew his own limitations, knew the best approach to take. And stayed with that. And to your point, it doesn't feel like he's doing an out and out imitation as a result of that decision.
2: One thing that was interesting, because we're focused a little bit on like the sounds and everything, just listening to the Venusian Aikido <laughs> <laughs> just in audio was a very special treat. I didn't know I needed that.
0: Yeah. And it's the kind of thing you don't think is going to work until you hear it. Yeah. Which is awesome.
2: It does help having seen him do it on screen because then you can like visualize it in your head. Because otherwise, <laughs> yeah. it still works, but it's not quite the same.
1: I have to admit, that it gave me quite a chuckle when they put that <laughs> into the story. I really enjoyed that.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about the story here. And fundamentally, what we have is a classic four-parter that is about the occult with
1: Nazis. Everybody's favorite villain in fiction.
2: We open up with the occult and. I love when, I guess, it does she become possessed and then have that gravelly voice that's like mm-hmm. Hades personified? Yes. That was really fun. And just the occult in general, I preferred the occult in the first part where I'm sitting here like, oh man, I'm invested and I want to know about all these people and everything else. As the story went on, I'm like, man, I wish it was more actual occult than what actually ended up happening. I understand where the story went and why it went there. But I actually probably would have preferred to have kept closer to that. But to set up the story, I thought it was really well done. I really enjoyed it. And then to go to the other side where the doctor's being grumpy with Joe and sorting through bills and going through the mail was just so much fun. (laughs)
1: it was a classic opening in a way. It feels how the show has worked before. It's such a close comparison. It feels like the demons a bit. You know, Joe and the doctor are unaware of this activity that's happening outside of them. And they're just kind of going through a mundane situation until the television broadcasts and then they head over.
2: And guess what? We have yet another instance of the Time Lord saying, hey, doctor, we need your help. Go do this thing for us
0: again.
1: This Time Lord is the worst as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. She sucks.
1: <laughs> but at least this time they didn't use him as UPS or FedEx. <laughs> this time he actually had to be a little bit more active instead of just delivering a box.
2: Well, instead of delivering, though, it was basically, hey, go pick that up for
1: me. Oh, I guess so. Then it's just the other <laughs> other side of courier service.
0: Yes, I think what I particularly disliked about this particular Time Lord was in the final episode, after Daisy had shot Sir Davenport Finch, this Time Lord shows up to gloat about it. Yeah. And that just felt really, really off to me. We've seen them defy their own moral code and interfere in the show, but for her to kind of show up and gloat over this guy who's dying, that did not sit well with me.
1: It was a bit unusual, yes.
2: Except, you know, I always sit here and just remind myself that the Time Lords are the worst because every (laughs) single time I see them as a collective group in Doctor Who, it's not good. So I don't really mind throwing her under the bus and saying, well, she's terrible because guess what? In my head, all Time Lords are terrible except for the Doctor and the Master. He's really not that bad.
0: (laughs) We'll meet a couple more in our journey, Julie, who I think you'll like but they are very much the exception and the majority of Time Lords are just terrible.
1: (laughs) In regards to the entrance of this character, they made a nice callback there to the fellow in the bowler hat. That's part of the fun with Doctor Who, right? There's so many different things you can reference in this show and it can all come back. And so it's always just a nice little, little treat when they do that.
0: There are some other nice callbacks. So when he's basically trying to say, can't you get someone else to do this? He says something along the lines of, try the corsair, who is mentioned in The Doctor's Wife in the Stephen Moffat era, or the fellow in the cassock referring to the meddling monk. So we get flashes forward and back. And I really enjoyed that. There are a lot of nice little references throughout this story to other things in continuity.
2: We also get introduced to Douglas Quilter.
0: Dougie. I love Dougie.
2: I love him. (laughs) He is wonderful. I love the name. The name itself is great. He's a wing commander. So I'm like, okay, everything about this man is phenomenal. I'd really love to meet him or I'd love to see him on the show. Just a really fun character. And what was nice is we get introduced to him as a character and find out that he already knew them. And it's a little bit more refreshing than a okay, it's two seasons and like we're referencing someone who met him two seasons ago. So I just thought that was a fun little twist on it.
0: I really loved how the doctor and Joe didn't know him yet, but he knew them. Yes. That feels very almost River Mm Song-like in the whole, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway, wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing.
2: I'm so sad that you don't like it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're going to go through that every time we do Big Finish apparently. (laughs)
1: I really enjoyed Ducky's voice. I do feel like they did put a change in there when we went back into the 40s from meeting him in their time. But I also feel like there was a slight change when we come back and we meet him at the end again. I felt like there was a change on our bookend, (laughs) Ducky's. (laughs) In the voice for some reason. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I just feel like the first meeting, there's a little bit more like panache to when he spoke. And then it didn't seem to be there in the second time.
2: I think part of that could be because he was doing a book reading.
1: Yeah, maybe that's it.
2: And I loved that, again, another one of those instances where we had the book reading, and then it switched to a different conversation, and then it went back to the book reading. And I really enjoyed that. I really liked that flow in part one. And I wish they had kept it going a little bit longer.
0: Yeah. On that note, though, what I thought was particularly interesting here is the setup unusually took all of episode one.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I think when we're watching the TV show, the setup takes five to ten minutes and then we are cast off to Peladon or Solos or wherever, whereas here it's a full episode before we're cliffhangered in the past. It's very different.
2: It is very different, but I like it. And since it's, again, in the audio format and it follows a little bit more closely to like written word than an actual episode would be, so it is able to take its time to fully grow.
0: Yeah, exactly. We eventually get back to the 1940s and encounter young Dougie Quilter, who Riley has obviously said there's some manipulation on the voice and Big Finish are good with that. They do a little vocal processing on Tom Baker now to make him sound younger in his audios. It might be simply through acting, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do something to make him sound younger too. But as the plot progresses, we find out about this character, Hare (sighs) Littman.
2: Hare Littman person that I really wanted to meet because I wanted to hear someone with a really heavy German accent, <laughs> turns out he doesn't exist.
1: And that's such a classic setup, too, right? Because a Nazi occult story, there's got to be a crazy German scientist somewhere, right? <laughs> or doctor involved. Everyone's heard about Nazi occultism. Oh, yeah. And I, I understand the appeal in stories because you know, historically, we look at it from a point of view of like, wow, this very powerful group that conquered Europe, they were actively involved in this stuff. So they actually believed it. It's such a conundrum in our minds. That's, you know, a group that had so much power and that was so successful at attaining power actually believed in stuff that we think is probably just a joke voodoo, right? Is it though? I was about it- to say, <laughs> it went really silent. Are you guys uh, hiding something from me? Wait, I understand it. If that's why you invited me on. You guys are going to sacrifice <laughs> me, aren't you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God.
2: As you well know, the demons was almost all of our favorite episodes. Like, it's so good. So we're, we're just going to continue going down the occult path.
0: <laughs> and I think that's very deliberate to kind of evoke that here. Obviously, we have to call out the... I don't want to say it's a guest spot. It's little more than a glorified cameo, but bringing in Ian McNeese as Churchill. I loved it. I really like how Doctor Who now has an established Winston Churchill, and it's always the same actor. He's been in several other big finish plays, as well as his time on screen in the Matt Smith era. I think it's fantastic.
1: It's just such a nice way of tying it all together. I was concerned. I did not look at the cast listing before I listened, and... When they introduced and they had him on the phone, but you couldn't hear his voice because it was on a conversation going on in the background. And I immediately thought, oh, they couldn't get Ian McNeese for this, could they? And then he shows up. I was so happy about that. It was such a wonderful surprise. It was, I like that setup of like, okay, maybe he's not in here. Oh, wait, we did bring him in.
2: In a show where the main character switches faces. we decide, you know what? Churchill, Churchill has to be the same. Yes. And I love it.
1: Now, in this episode, and I rewound and rewound, and I still don't believe that I heard it correctly, but did they make mention of something called the Club of Curious Scientific Men?
2: Yes. Okay.
1: All right. I just wanted to clarify that.
2: (laughs) I specifically wrote this down, and it's the Club of Curious Scientific Men. First off, I just love the fact that since the Doctor has been trapped on Earth for so long, that he has clubs that he goes to.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this is very kind of London establishment. You join a gentleman's club and there's nothing more impressive than taking someone for dinner or a drink at your club. And given the slight poshness of the third doctor, it's absolutely something that he would do. I love it.
2: Oh, one of the things that we got, it wasn't from the doctor, but we had a I'll explain later.
0: I noticed that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) From Joe.
0: This is the first time we've brought up Joe. And Julie, you and I obviously have encountered her on audio before when we did The Doll of Death. But what I couldn't help but notice is how much older Katie Manning sounded here than she did in The Doll of Death. I thought the last time we heard her, she sounded, you know, a little bit older than she was when she played Joe. But I thought here she sounded significantly older. Was that just me?
1: No, I'm glad you brought that up. I felt the same way, but... I I don't know. I would that just saying that is that mean? I don't know. We all get older.
0: I think there are things that Big Finish could. I mean, like they do with Tom Baker, where they process his voice a little bit to make him sound younger. I think they could have done that here. At times, it took me out of the story a little.
2: Yeah, a little bit. Because the one with the doll of death is she was telling the story is a little bit like kind of in the past type of thing. I know it's definitely for some of the other ones it was. Way back in the past, and that's how they got around the age issue. It didn't bother me, I don't think, as much as it bothered you guys, but I can understand it. That's fair. And yeah,
0: I mean, to Riley's point, you can't be mad at her for getting older because it's something that's going to happen to all of us at some point. I just think maybe they could have done something to make her sound a little younger.
1: And also, she has the disadvantage of being the only original player. So, in our minds, Her voice, we know that backwards and forwards. And when it's her voice, but it sounds just a little bit different, it's really is noticeable compared to having another person play the third doctor that we just kind of like we brush that off because it doesn't I guess it's kind of like the uncanny valley feel like this is very close, but something is off, and so we are noticing that little bit compared to something that's obviously not even the exact same. Yeah, she's the anchor point, basically.
2: But I did enjoy Joe in this. Every once in a while, I'm like, man, can we give Joe a little bit more to do? But then I think towards the end, she was Oh, doing... she
1: kicks on there. Yeah. yeah,
2: towards the end. Although I will talk about how her efforts of improvisation need a little bit of work.
1: <laughs> yes, they do.
0: <laughs> Across this story, there are a few moments where I thought the dialogue felt a little...
2: Stilted? Stilted. <gasps> yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> and it wasn't just her. I suspect that's in scripting rather than performance.
2: Yeah, I think I would agree. But one person I think who nailed it is whoever played Daisy Chapel. Oh, my gosh. She stole the show for me. She was phenomenal. She was a zealot. She believed with her entire being. And that was just something that was kind of really fun to see. Because a lot of times in these Big Finish, especially, it's someone believes something and then... The whole point is Joe or the doctor trying to convince them that no, they're wrong. There was none of that that was going to happen with Miss I actually really enjoyed that she was one. She was like, nope, this is what I believe is very much this. She didn't like men and she wanted the Nazis to win. That was it.
0: Which, knowing what we know now and having defeated the Nazis and understanding what they stand for, makes her particularly abhorrent as a character. So, yes. I think for us to step back and praise her performance shows how strong she was in that role.
2: Yeah. Again, there's a difference in she was the best performer and she was the most interesting character versus I side with her and agree with her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
2: Big difference.
0: (laughs) But, you know, you hear plenty of stories about people getting hate mail because of the characters they've played. And I want to emphasize that that's not what we think here. We recognize (laughs) she's playing a character and we appreciate the way she played that character.
2: And she's so cunning. She stole the doctor's cloak to put on the scarecrow to mislead Joe and Dougie and try to kill them. That was brilliant.
0: Yeah. There was one element of her... But I never quite understood. She was particularly mad at Sir Davenport Finch for killing Sally. And I thought, okay, there's some kind of connection here. Maybe she's related to Sally or, you know, maybe Sally was her lover or, you know, a close friend.
2: So did you listen to the interviews?
0: <sighs> you know my answer to this, Julie. You're, I'm going to say no, and then you're going to tell me that I should every time. <laughs> and I still won't do it next time. So no.
2: Because the actress did touch upon it a little bit. And that's what I said, where she hates men. It kind of stems from that. But really what it stems from is one of the reasons why she sided so much with the Nazi regime is because she saw that the British regime of misogyny and men being superior in that time period. And so the Nazis were opening it up to women because they were trying to get more of their vote because they were like, if we can convince them to be a part of our party, then we can take away those from the UK. So she was very much playing it from that perspective. And that's why she was so mad about the killing of Sally, because she saw it as a male misogynist instead of trying to turn her, was just like, well, she's not worth it because she's a woman, so I'll kill her. Okay. See, this is why you listen to the interviews. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Putting my historian hat on for a second, though, the Nazis did genuinely believe that a woman's job was to pop out plenty of Nazi babies.
2: They played a game, especially in the occult, they would draw women in. Mm. So it was a bit tied there as well.
0: I want to flash back to Churchill briefly, because one note I have here is that it was rather fun having the third doctor interacting with someone who's a real life character that Pertwee actually knew.
1: Oh.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: I thought that was so cool.
2: I forgot about that.
0: From his time in naval intelligence and reporting effectively directly to the cabinet. I loved that. I was like, oh, that's rather fun. I realize I'm meandering all over the place here, but let's talk about Sir Davenport Finch. We touched on him briefly. Obviously, one of our first encounters of him is him choking Sally.
2: He is my least favorite character of this whole thing. I think he's worse than Miss Chapel in a lot of ways because, first off, he's an idiot. (laughs) And he is a domineering man who thinks he's better than everyone else. And
1: And a traitor.
2: And a traitor, yeah. Basically, all three of those things. I mean, he played it brilliantly, but I hated him.
0: Yeah, I think he's one of those characters where you enjoy hating him as well. I think Terry Malloy, who we will eventually see in the main show as Davros, I think he did a great job. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame that he never got to meet the fabled Herr Littman.
1: <laughs> Which I think they should change the title from Operation Hellfire to Waiting for Littman. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love that. But I also really like every time, like, well, not every time, but most of the time when they brought up the name, they were like, Operation Hellfire. It's like everything stopped. They spoke it very, like, succinctly. Mm -hmm. And then usually there was some sort of music cue at the very end that was like, okay, I get it. Operation Hellfire.
1: And I believe during some of the occult uh, proceedings, it was kind of done in like a heavy metal rock arena, hellfire, <laughs> kind of feel, <laughs> you know? Hellfire! <laughs> mm. I think we get to one of the most interesting elements of, I think, is, and I, I feel like it's been a long time, especially with the third Doctor, kind of being used as an expendable bait here. Yes. Very interesting twist for how they are writing the character. And I like it. To me, that always felt very much
0: like the Avengers. Patrick McNee used to Mm -hmm. joke about how he always had a beautiful woman as his sidekick, but they kind of inverted that by having him be the one who had to be rescued. And that's effectively what they've done in this script. The doctor is the one who Joe has to come in and save the day. Right, right. Albeit with the help of Quilter.
2: She comes in to save the day, but what frustrates me, and it's not just in this episode, it's also in the show itself, is she goes and she creates a brilliant lie. Okay, great. Awesome, Joe. Keep going. And then immediately she turns around (laughs) and like drops it. (laughs) Because it's like, she comes in and she's like, I'm one of the occult followers. (gasps) Yes, Joe, you totally got this. Immediately she sees the doctor. She's like, doctor. I'm like,
0: You
1: (sighs) and then has to cover. And I think the reason why they do that, and it's happened before with her, is I think the expression is true of heart. And I think that's how they're trying to paint her as. And that's a fine thing for a character to be. But you're right, it does come across as well, that's really sweet and endearing, but also could be seen as not very intelligent.
2: Well, the biggest thing is that since she was trained by unit in a lot of different things, I would think that undercover spy work would be included in that training. And that's where I get frustrated. It's not that I think that she's dumb, but I'm pretty sure you trained for this and you got really good training. So how come you're not better at it?
0: Right. Yeah. She really is winging it. I mean, when she then has to turn around and claim that she's Dr. Josephine Grant and she's asked what her PhD is in, she almost stutters her way through that. And if I were Finch, I'd be just sitting there thinking bullshit and the only way she gets away with all of it is because Churchill calls and basically saves her completely by coincidence
2: also I love the fact that she's Dr. Grant and just every time I heard it I'm like this is not Jurassic Park (laughs) not Dr. Grant (laughs) but anyway I digress
0: let's talk briefly about Hegley
1: I love this character
2: I love the character. I don't think they went far enough with him.
0: Yeah, I got the impression he was one of the ones who originally had to guard Finch. And through one way or another, Finch convinced him to join him instead,
1: which I don't get. I would have liked to know how. I think it's because it's what I found one of the most wonderful parts of the entire production here was at the very end, and I know we're jumping around here, But he's taken into custody and given an opportunity to kind of like explain himself, right? Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about it feels good to have certainty, be a part of something that you believe is right. And I couldn't help but think, but in fascistic thinking, that is something in that kind of mind and that social grouping that has got to be something that's very attractive to people is that if you convince yourself, then you'll always be right. And what you believe is always right. And to have that type of certainty and what is clearly a world and universe that is very uncertain is terrifying to some people. They can't handle that. They want something that's certain. And I thought that was a nice touch on a psychological element of fascism that attracts people. And also at the end, I'm glad they also had him clear himself because his voice, how he sounded, you could think that he was perhaps a confused old man that just got caught up with a Satan worshipping Nazis by accident. (laughs) That's what his voice sounded like. He sounded like such a sweet old man. But then (laughs) I'm glad they had him clear his uh, motives up. (laughs) The other element
0: with him that (laughs) I sat there thinking, what the hell over, was when it turned out. Yep, he's been fine with helping Finch and the Nazis, but as soon as black magic comes into it, he's a little bit reticent.
1: Well, I think that once again goes to that, you know, that sense of uncertainty. You know, the magic is, you know, something that's amorphous and there's no concrete thing about it. Yeah, also true.
2: Let's touch the big part, the dirigible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In this plan.
1: Giant blimp. Yeah, not too sure about the plan.
2: It's not great
1: not a great plan
2: now she believes in it fullheartedly but it's right. not a good plan
1: no it's uh, going to kill thousands and I don't want to belittle the loss of life, but could we bump those numbers up for a little more dramatic effect? Because <laughs> it kind of gave the feeling of, my dirigible will give food to people that is poisoned. There will be hundreds of people in this county that will have food poisoning, and it'll be all due to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a damp squib as a, as a plan right. goes.
2: What I had been hoping for was that the amulet of Wasteland Wasteland being the key. I wanted something to happen with that, like her going up in the dirigible and somehow utilizing this amulet to create a wasteland. Yes. That's what I wanted to have happened.
1: Basically, we're setting up a story that is Raiders of the Lost Ark. We get to the third act and the ark doesn't do anything here. <laughs> it does nothing. You just kept it in the box. I didn't even open it. And that's just such a downer. <laughs> I was sitting here thinking so, what does this thing actually do?
2: Yes. And we never
1: find out.
0: Why do the Time Lords want it back so much? It's <laughs> a MacGuffin. That's its
1: purpose. That's it.
0: Yeah. If I ever form a metal band, we are calling an album Amulets of the Wasteland.
1: <laughs> it's an awesome name. Yeah. It
2: really is.
1: Oh, and one more thing about the plan. I did like it tying into the idea of wartime rationing, like they're going to be desperate for food. You know, they should have made it more specific, like we're going to be dropping like chocolate cake and all this tasty stuff down on them. They can't resist it.
0: (laughs) I realize in America, there wasn't really rationing to the same extent as any rate that we had in the UK. Just thinking back, my grandmother who passed away eight years ago, up until her death, she was hoarding sugar. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Even once rationing
1: ended, that things that were rationed, she would hoard. I remember my grandmother would do the same thing, and that was not because of rationing. I think it's because of the Depression.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a similar mindset. Those who lived through the Depression and those who lived through rationing in Britain in World War II, very similar habits coming out of those.
2: I'm curious of how this dirigible turned around. Was it the Time Lord who went in? and turn the dirigible around because I feel like that could have potentially happened because otherwise it makes no sense.
0: Yeah, they say it might have been the amulet as well.
2: I'm more convinced that the Time Lord lady would have done it as opposed to the amulet itself because the amulet has done nothing. But when that happens, she goes nuts and she kills herself.
0: Absolutely bonkers. (laughs) Totally nuts. And at one point, it was at least meant to be a surprise that she was into all of this stuff. We knew because we had heard her at the end of episode one. But for Quilter, he was like, well, I had my suspicions, but I didn't know for sure. And she's so fanatical that when she can't do what she wants to do in service of the glorious Führer, (laughs) she kills herself. It's bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. Recapping the end, we have another encounter with Churchill. And this is where the doctor says something that I thought was really profound, where he says the monsters were already here and they wore a human face. That's a good line. I liked that a lot. Doctor Who, I think, is very preoccupied with fighting monsters from outer space and less preoccupied with fighting the monsters within.
2: Yes and no. Every once in a while, you get some situations where they weren't at fault. But it's also a thing where across other areas, not just Doctor Who, it is a lot more common where the monsters turn out to be the humans, the Witcher. (laughs) But yeah, I see your point. It was a great line. Don't get me wrong. And I want to get your guys' thoughts. What do you guys think of how are we going to keep the amulet safe? We're going to have Quilter keep it in his sock drawer. (laughs) Can one of you guys explain to me how that is the best way to handle it? It's
0: not, but equally, (laughs) if you're the Time Lord, are you really going to go sifting through Wing Commander
1: Dougie Quilter's sock drawer (laughs) to find this damn thing? Probably not. I was kind of hoping that him holding on to it, somehow by looking into it, it would like show him crazy visions and that's what he would write his books about. I think that would have been fun. And that's implied, but
0: then the doctor says, or oh, maybe people just enjoy a rollicking good story.
2: <laughs> I wish he hadn't have said that. I wish it was Quilter saying that maybe this is why I was you know, so popular and then the doctor could have just been like, maybe, and it left it much more open-ended, would have been a lot more fun.
0: I agree with that. And I mean, I really felt like there were a few misses in this story. We've already touched on the dialogue, which at times was not great. I mean, it was clumsy. There was a point where Daisy had a gun and she's going to hand it over. And she says, take this gun, which I took from the wing commander. Mm, And it didn't flow well. And I think there were a few elements in the story At one point with the Time Lord, I already mentioned how she kind of gloats over Finch. She's quite cruel to him. And I was like, wait, are we going to find out that she's not actually a Time Lord? And no, that never happens. I felt like there were just some missed opportunities and some rather clumsy
1: elements of dialogue through the story. But there was, I thought, on a positive note, some good little touches of humor.
2: Oh, yes. The humor, there was plenty and it was good humor. There wasn't anything that fell flat dialogue-wise, and a few tiny plot point things. But overall, it was a very cohesive story, very well acted.
0: Absolutely. I think that takes us through to the end of our discussion about the story itself. Should we go ahead and rate this thing? Let's do it. Julie, do you want to go first?
2: I will go first. I enjoyed this. It's a bit longer than some of the other Big Finish that we've done, but Big Finish continues to nail it on the soundscapes, the sound design, and the music. Very big plus. The acting is really, really, really good. The actor playing the third doctor did a very, very good job and fun things in this. And then everyone heard about me really liking Miss Daisy Chapel. And yeah, there's a few minor things here and there, clunky dialogue, things like that. But overall, just a fun, fun story. So I'm going to give it seven and a half. Grumpy Doctor's opening bills.
1: Out of 10. Riley, let's go with you next. I enjoyed myself. This is my first Big Finish. I would love to hear how Big Finish would do a soundscape for an alien setting, completely bizarre, out there setting. I was quite happy with the voice work and the acting. I thought that the plot suffered towards the third act, and I made that pretty clear. But I was very entertained by the humor. I thought it flowed very well. The pacing was very good. And it was just a pleasant little ride. I can't be too specific on my rating other than from a personal perspective, because this is, like I said, my first big finish. So I will play it down the line and say that I will give it seven curious scientific men out of (laughs) ten. I dig it. And that leaves me. And
0: I enjoyed this. I thought it did a really good job of evoking the era. The opening felt very demons-esque. The soundscape was fantastic, really reminded me of old Dudders. And I thought for the most part, the cast did a really good job. I enjoyed Tim Trelaw as the Doctor. Personally, it wasn't my first time hearing him, but it's been a while and I'd forgotten how good he is as the third Doctor. The story, I thought the plot for the most part was a lot of fun, but I do acknowledge what Riley said in that it does suffer a little in the third act and maybe it could have done with one final draft to really polish that off. And there were a few elements that took me out. The dialogue is a little clumsy at times. I did mention I thought that Katie Manning definitely sounds older. She's very breathy in her performance, and I think maybe Big Finish could have given her a little help to sound a bit more like Joe Grant. I think overall for me This was enjoyable. I did enjoy it, despite the few flaws I've pointed out. There were some wonderfully hateful characters, as we discussed. And I'm curious to hear more and more of the third Doctor range that they've got going on. So I'm going to give this, like Julie, seven and a half Brides for Lucifer out of 10. (laughs) Before we bring this to a close, Riley, having now done your first big finish, are you going to go back and listen
1: to more? I think I will. I think that I will focus, like I mentioned in my rating, on seeing very specific things that they do. I want to see what their range is. This is, in my opinion, a very classic Doctor Who, London during <laughs> during World War II kind of story, <laughs> and it's a very common setting. I want to see what they do when they really go out there. Send me to the web planet, Big Finish, please. <laughs> Will you
0: join us for future Big Finish bonus episodes?
1: Yes, I think so. This was Woo! this was enjoyable. I was kinda caught by surprise. Like I said I'm not necessarily a fan of audiobooks or audio plays, but I was thoroughly impressed with the production value of this. Julie, we got a convert.
2: One of us. One <laughs> of us.
0: <laughs> All right. With that, that seems like the perfect opportunity to wrap this up. Riley, we're so glad that you joined us for this. Glad that you enjoyed it and that you'll be coming back for more Big Finish. In the meantime, we'll be back next time round with a regular episode. And if my timing is correct, that should be the season nine retrospective. But thank you so much for listening. And as always, have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Julie Filipec, Riley Schreck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This bonus episode, Waiting for Litman, was recorded on Wednesday, the 12th of January 2022. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favourite podcasting platform. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watches 4 d and you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you're doing a story about Nazis, it may be fun to throw in the occult, but it's also really cliche at this point.